Uh, thanks for joining us again. Thank you for being a part of uh, this, uh, this gathering, this virtual gathering. Uh, I wanted to uh, begin by, by letting you know that uh, we have two dogs. We have a small dog and a bigger dog. And probably like many of you with pets, we love our dogs and they've become fixtures in our home. And what I'm most impressed about dogs and, and other pets are, are like this too, is that dogs wanna be wherever we are. If we go upstairs to watch a movie, they'll follow us and, and situate themselves up there with us. Uh, we've also, we've crate trained these dogs. So uh, what that means is that ever since they were little puppies, when it's time to go to bed, they go into their crates. And a few times we've tried not putting them in their crates and we wondered, if we don't put them in the crates, uh, when it's time to go to bed, what will they do? Uh, the answer to that question probably should have been pretty obvious, and that is they want to be where we are and sleep where we are. So sometimes that means right on top of us. That's where they'd prefer to be, wherever we are. So that to say they still sleep in their crates at night. But I'm always so amused that they follow us around here in the house. Uh, by the way, yeah, I'm on a different set today. You may have noticed uh, we're coming to you uh, from a, uh, our alternate studio location here at the Fesco home. But anyway, uh, I'm amused how these dogs follow us around the house. Uh, Tracy jokes that, that she has security detail that, uh, that follows her everywhere. Wherever she goes, they go with her too. And similarly, if I go away for the day, when I come back, uh, when the dogs see me, they go nuts. Oh boy, you're back. I can't believe you're here. It does a heart good to be greeted like that every day. But then I began to wonder, why, why do they like me so much? Why do they like my wife so much? We've convinced ourselves that our dogs love us and they have affection for us. But do they? I, I think we'd certainly like to believe that, but, but what if it's more primitive than that? Okay, what if it's just that the dogs have figured out, if I stay near this person, eventually he will give me food. I don't want to not be around just in case he starts handing out food. In fact, I've been around him before when he's dropped food. So I want to be around him in case that happens. What if our dogs don't really love us? They just love food. And so they show us enthusiasm because we're the source of food. Do they love us because of food? I know I'm ruining pets for everyone right now, but let's just go with no, they really do love us. But here's the reality. And this isn't true just for pets. It's true for humans too. Humans tend to operate this way too. We, we like people and get along with people, not simply for who they are, but what they can do for us. How often will your affection for someone increase after they've given you a compliment? Oh, I think you're a good person. You're not so bad yourself, right? This is why people use and abuse flattery because it works. Relationships, if we're not careful, can take on a pattern of, I'll love you if you love me. If you don't love me, then I won't love you, okay? Now, here's what I find really interesting and fascinating about that. Do you know that this is how every religion in the world operates too? The deity loves you so long as you do your part. If you fail to do your part, you've lost the favor of the deity. That's every religion in the world, except for one. How does our God love us? That's, that's what I want us to look at today. And I'm going to show you by way of King David. But remember, as always, we're not just going to look at King David. We're trying to see how King David, or anyone in the Old Testament for that matter, how, look at Luke 24. This is what Jesus was telling the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Is that everything, everything in the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, everything, it all points to me. It all points to Jesus. So how does David, how does David in this account point us to Jesus? 
Now, uh, many of you probably already know this, but, but David wasn't Israel's first king. How did he become king? Well, originally, uh, Israel didn't have a king. All the other nations around them had a king, but, but they didn't. They wanted a king, you know, but the Lord was their king. Initially, they didn't have him. The Lord was their king. Israel had many leaders, had like uh, Moses and, and Joshua, who we discussed last week, but they were not considered kings. After Joshua was the period of the judges, uh, who were also not kings, Israel had no singular king that ruled over all 12 tribes. Uh, some of you might be on a, uh, a yearly Bible reading plan, and uh, you might have just finished uh, the book of Judges. So if you're looking at the people of God, okay, uh, uh, Israel, if you're looking at their history, it would go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then Judges, and along with that comes Ruth. So up to this point in, in Israel's history. So again, if you're on that yearly Bible reading plan, you're into Judges and, and even maybe into First uh, Samuel now. Up to that point in history, um, they don't have a king. It's only when we start to get into First Samuel that we start to read about uh, that account. But it was just after this period of the Judges, once again, uh, Israel can't help but look over the fence to see what their neighbors are doing. All the surrounding nations had kings, and by George, they wanted a king too. So in spite of the warnings to the Israelites from, from Samuel the prophet, uh, the Lord granted their request for an earthly king. So Samuel appointed a guy named Saul to be the first king of Israel. And at first, Saul seemed like a great king, but he soon began to fall out of favor with the Lord as he began to be filled with, with pride and increasingly disobedient to God's instruction. It got to the point where it even tells us in Scripture that the spirit of the Lord would depart from Saul and an evil spirit would, would torment him. And in the midst of this, this torment, this is where we're introduced to David. David, the, the young shepherd boy, would play his harp for Saul and, and the evil spirits would subside. This is how David is introduced to us. David, the son of Jesse, harp player and shepherd boy. Even though unbeknownst to Saul, the Lord had already anointed him to be the king of Israel. David is brought to us as a servant of the king, all right? And this is where, where Goliath comes into the picture, which we talked about several weeks ago when, when we were meeting in person. Uh, but to this point, David is nothing more than a harp player. And, and the next significant event we see David involved with is this, this slaying of, of Goliath. Now, after the slaying of Goliath, David formed a bond with Jonathan. Jonathan was the son of King Saul. Jonathan and David were, were best friends, and, and uh, as David continued in the service of Saul as a, as a warrior defeating any and every enemy that was placed before him, Saul, in his jealousy, would even try and put David in the front of the battle lines for the express purpose of seeing him die. But the Lord was with David, and he defeated every enemy before him. And of course, after the slaying of Goliath and, and all his other conquests, David was becoming quite the popular guy so much so that it was enraging Saul. He was becoming increasingly filled with, with jealousy over David. You see what I mean about how we feel about people and how it depends on what they do for us? David is a great guy to King Saul, a tremendous asset. He's a warrior that preserves his kingdom. Oh man, I love him. Unless we make him out to be a hero. If he's a hero, then I'm not sure I'm okay with that. I'd like to be the hero. What makes David so great anyway, right? This must be what King Saul must be thinking. Meanwhile, Jonathan, Saul's son, and David, they're, they're tighter than ever. And in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, something significant happens. You see, Jonathan, 
the son of a king, is the rightful heir of the throne. And, and should anything happen to his father, Saul, right? It, the throne should go to Jonathan. But Jonathan confesses that the Lord was with David. He tells him, you know, I believe that the Lord's with you. And, and, and his father was, even though his father was king, he's discovering David was anointed by God to be the, the, uh, the heir of the throne. David is the greatest of all time. Okay, we're uh, we're watching a documentary right now, and sure, maybe some of you are too. Uh, it's called The Last Dance. It's about Michael Jordan, perhaps the greatest basketball player of of all time, and it's telling the story of the the last championship team he was on. But they're also going back and detailing his his upbringing, his years in college, and his early years in the NBA, and and even early early in his career. By the testimony of some of the greatest players that ever played the game of basketball. They saw the greatness of Michael Jordan very early on. And early in his, his career, he was, he was humbling these guys. It's easy to believe you're great. It's easy to believe you're great until someone better than you comes along. Then it's humbling. It's very, very humbling. And I did see that Charles had a, uh, an icon or a, 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 a still of Michael Jordan as his, as his um, profile picture. So way to tie it in there, Charles. Thank you. Uh, but uh, young David was the uh, the Michael Jordan of warriors, okay? From very early on in his career, he conquered the mighty Goliath. To this day in sports, if there's ever an upset where the underdog defeats the heavy favorite, they call it a David Goliath story. David had the heart after God's own heart, okay? Let's, uh, let's start with uh, this passage in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 18.4 says this. 1 Samuel 18.4 says this. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. That was uh, 1 Samuel 18.4. Um, it's like <laughs> we're making the comparison to, uh, uh, to Michael Jordan. Uh, Ruth points out, it's like coming to Nashville thinking you're a good singer. Yes. This town eats singers alive and eats musicians alive. You, you think you're great until you meet the, the guitar player next to you who, uh, who can't even feed himself <laughs> with his own, with a, with a living that he makes as a singer. Great, great, uh, great point there. But so anyway, okay, so you're the greatest, David. Uh, whoops. There's a notification. You're the greatest, David, and it's hard to argue otherwise. Jonathan recognizes the inevitable kingship of David. And before too long, we're told that Saul, even Saul, knew the Lord was with David. And, and he became even more afraid of David and effectively put a hit out on David. Jonathan, the king's son and beloved friend of David, knew this and warned him, hey, my, my dad is out to kill you. And if, that's, and if that warning weren't enough, the king himself would take an opportunity to try and pin him against the wall with a spear and do the deed himself. David began to realize that this isn't a mistake. This isn't just one of Saul's mood swings. He's, he's trying to kill me. Nevertheless, uh, David uh, escaped unharmed and fled the presence of Saul uh, literally goes on the run. And while a fugitive, Jonathan sought him out and basically tells David, whenever the day comes that the Lord strikes down all of your enemies, please remember me and remember my family. And at that time, Jonathan and David entered into a covenant together. Okay. Now you're seeing something different. We're seeing something that's, that's not typical. David, I'm asking you to love me. 
okay? I'm asking you to love me, not because I have anything I can do for you. I have nothing to offer you, David. Now, how does David respond to that? At one point, well, while David is on the run, he has the opportunity to kill Saul himself, the father of Jonathan. It's quite the dramatic story. Saul ducks into a cave to, to relieve himself. And it happens to be the cave where David and his men are hiding. And David sneaks up to him and cuts off a piece of Saul's robe without him knowing. And after Saul exits the, the, the cave, David chases him down and shows him, look, I've got the corner of your robe. I could have killed you. I could have killed you. But far be it for me to rise up against the Lord's anointed. Even though Saul was nuts and was trying to hunt down David and kill him, David insists, look, you're the king because God made you king. And that's enough for, for me to keep me from taking your life. So Saul, in a moment of, of clarity, tells, tells David, essentially, you're the great one here. You're the greatest. The greatest of all time. In that, in that Michael Jordan documentary, one of the things that struck me is that they're interviewing a guy by the name of Patrick Ewing. Patrick Ewing played against Michael Jordan in the NCAA championship and, and was one of the greatest centers to ever play the game of basketball. It was Michael Jordan that made the winning shot against Patrick Ewing in the Georgetown Hoyas. And so here they are years later interviewing Patrick Ewing all these years later. And there he is on camera, Patrick Ewing, the big guy that he is, wearing a, a Georgetown University shirt. And the logo was on the right side of his shirt. And on the left side of his shirt was the Michael Air Jordan Jumping Man logo. So even his rival in, in, his, in college now wears the Michael Jordan apparel, okay? In, in a way, yielding to the greatness. It's as if he was being interviewed saying, yeah, yeah, I can't deny it. He's the greatest. Look at me. I'm, I'm even wearing his clothes now. This is that moment for Saul. Saul is acknowledging to David, you're, you're a better man than I am. May God reward you, and I'm sure that one day you'll be king, you'll be king David. And David, when that, when that day comes, listen to this. Listen to the audacity. Saul asks David, this is, this is Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 24, 21. Okay, listen, listen to the audacity here. Bringing up the screen. Swear to me. This is Saul talking now. Swear to me, therefore by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. That's unbelievable. It's interesting, right? It's, it's a plea. David, show me love, even though I have nothing to offer you. Even though, even though I'm trying to kill you. Please show your love to me and my family. Remember when we looked at the account of Job a few weeks back? We said a story like that almost doesn't make sense. And you know what? If you only looked at the book of Job, you'd walk away thinking that it didn't make sense. I don't get why God would do any of this, right? It only makes sense when you place it against the backdrop of the rest of redemptive history. We're seeing that here too. It makes no sense for David to show mercy to Saul. You're trying to kill me. And you're asking me to show you mercy? Tell me what kind of sense does that make? Unless, unless the story is a foreshadowing of a bigger story that will unfold later in history. So at that point, David enters into a covenant with Saul, a covenant that says, though you can't offer me a thing, I'm going to show you mercy. And even in spite of this mercy and, and kindness that David shows to Saul, after this event, Saul continues to pursue David. Even once again, David has yet another opportunity to kill Saul, and he doesn't do it. Again, this story makes no sense. It makes no sense, all right, unless it's here to point us to something else. 
David entered into the covenant with Saul that said, though you desire to kill me, though you have nothing to offer me in return, I will show you mercy and I will keep my word even if you don't keep yours. There was once a, an occasion uh, when one of my sons uh, put some money into a um, uh, uh, vending machine to get a drink. And instead of the machine dispensing one drink, out came two drinks. Now, what do you think I told him to do with that extra drink? I told him, woohoo, it's your lucky day. <laughs> now, really, what should I have told my son to do? I got to thinking about it after the fact and started thinking, yeah, I blew it. I blew it. You see, this was at the YMCA. He could have taken the extra drink and he, and he could, have, could have said, hey, I got one more than I paid for. That's what I should have done. And you know, they may have just told him to keep it anyway, right? But here, but here I want you to listen to how I justified it at the time. I thought to myself, there's going to come a day when my son puts his money into a, a vending machine and nothing will come out. That will probably happen more than him scoring a double on the, on the vending machine. More often than not, he's going to get ripped off and he's going to get a double, right? So, hey, enjoy your windfall. It'll all even out. What comes around goes around. Do you see how deep-rooted our flawed sense of relationships are? It's got to even out. It's got to be equal, 50-50, right? You, you, you can take if you've been taken from. We have this way of justifying our behavior because, hey, it's only fair, right? David had, earthly speaking, every right to kill Saul, did he not? It's only fair. However, he made a covenant with Saul. Does the fact that Saul turns his back on David once again suddenly negate the covenant in David's mind? How do you react to that? Is it a covenant of only both parties uphold to the terms of it? You see how the story doesn't make sense? It makes no sense. This is, this is so uncommon. Who makes a covenant that says, I'll keep my end of the deal, whether or not you keep yours? Who does that? Who is so backward like that? God does that. God does that. David is showing us the whispers of Christ here. I'll do what I said I would do, whether you remain faithful to the covenant or not. It doesn't make sense unless it's appointed to Jesus. Because everything, everything in our society, everything within us says it's got to be fair. I'll love you if you love me. and Otherwise, otherwise no deal, right? Later in battle against the Philistines, Jonathan, Saul's son, he's killed uh, in an archer's arrow, critically wounds Saul. And just before the Philistines overtake him, he falls on his own sword, Saul does, and, and he kills himself. So now both Saul and Jonathan are dead. And without the anointing of the Lord on David, you'd, you'd uh, um, and excuse me, with the anointing of the Lord on David, you'd think that it would be smooth transition for David uh, to enter into kingship. But even still, David is passed over yet again, and another son of Saul named Ishbosheth is made king. So civil war breaks out, and Israel goes on, uh, uh, that this uh, civil war goes on for years, and it's a dark period in, in their history. But eventually, yes, David finally ascends to the throne. So David is the king. The dust uh, is settling. And that brings us to this scene in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9. So if you want to follow along with me there, 2 Samuel chapter 9, we'll read this. We'll read verses 1 to 13. And remember, when you read this, when you read this, don't, don't go looking for the moral of the story. Okay, this is what we so often want to do in the Old Testament. We want to look at that, look at the Old Testament, read the account, and try and find the moral of the story. Okay, be brave, or okay, uh, be faithful, or whatever the case may be. As you read this account, 
what are we looking for? What are we always looking for here? We're looking for Jesus, okay? In the Old Testament, we're looking for Jesus. Not the moral of the story, we're looking for Jesus. We're looking for the fingerprints of Christ. Let's start with uh, 2 Samuel 9, 1 to 3. And it says this, 2 Samuel 9, 1 to 3. And it says, And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called uh, him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Remember, uh, David made a covenant to both Jonathan and Saul. Though Saul tried to, to pursue him and kill him right up to the day of his own death, David made a covenant to both of them, all right, that he would remember their household. So, so here he's taking opportunity to make good on this covenant and even mentions his, his uh, departed best friend, Jonathan. And we're told, in fact, that there is a son of Jonathan who remains. And, and we're told his, his, he's crippled in his feet. More on that in a second. Uh, let's keep going. Verses uh, 4 and 5 says this. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him to the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. We're not sure of the exact location of the city of Lodabar, but during this period of civil war after the death of Saul and Jonathan, the son of Jonathan, who might have been considered a rightful heir, was whisked away to this place, Lodabar, and it's in the next verse that we find out his name is Mephibosheth. Now, it's not the first time that this name is mentioned in this book. Back in, in chapter 4, verse 4, that name was mentioned in an almost parenthetical manner. So I'm going to go back to 2 Samuel 4.4, 4, and it reads this, 2 Samuel 4.4. 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him, took him up and fled. And as he fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Again, since uh, Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan and the grandson of Saul. Many might have looked at him as the likely heir to the throne since both Saul and his son had fallen in battle. And if David and his men are making the push to the throne, right, as was the custom, the new king, or in this case, the guy who's pursuing the throne, often established himself by exterminating the family of the previous king. So if the king is dead, his son is dead, no one knows what's going on. They're only to assume that the whole family is in danger. So the nurse, in her haste, swoops up Mephibosheth, only to drop him, leave him crippled in, his bo in both feet. And then we don't hear about Mephibosheth again until now, right? Verses, uh, let's keep going, verses uh, 6 uh, through 8. Verses 6 to 8 says this. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, 
for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore you to all the land of Saul, your father, and I will restore you, restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? See what's going on here? Is Mephibosheth afraid? You bet he is. His whole family has been wiped out and the new king has come calling. He was sought out, picked up by the king's men and dragged into the king's court. He, he thinks he's on the chopping block. So yes, he's afraid as evidenced by David's statement, do not fear, okay? But instead of executing Mephibosheth, instead of giving him what he had coming, David tells him, for the sake of your father, I'm gonna give you his inheritance. And not only that, Mephibosheth, you're gonna eat at my table, always. In effect, I'm adopting you, you and your crippled feet, and making you as my son. Are you starting to hear the gospel here? Are you starting to hear the gospel? Let me read for you the rest uh, of the chapter uh, to you. Uh, this is uh, starting in, in verse 9, just a few more, few more verses. It says this. Love this account. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belongs to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Okay, now that we have the whole story under our belt, let's see what we can pull out of this. Let's see if we can find the fingerprints of Christ. Let me ask you, do you see any fingerprints of Christ here? What are they? All right, first of all, let me ask you this. What is it that, that, uh, that David, well, let me just have to open the floor. Is there anyone that, that maybe wants to take a shot here at where Christ appears in this account of Mephibosheth and David? Um, I know it's probably a lot to, to share through chat, um, but if you have a hunch, go ahead and, and start sending some of those through to me. Uh, but I'll, I'll point one thing out to begin with. Um, it it continues to say that David tr wants to show something to Mephibosheth, something to uh, Jonathan's household or Saul's. It's mentioned three times, verses 1, 3, and 7. Uh, here's uh, here's from something from Lena. Yep. Fingerprints of Christ, eating at the king's table. Does that sound like a whisper of Christ to you? It does to me. Good one, Lena. That's a good one. But what's mentioned three times in this account, that David wants to show kindness to the household. Okay? Does, oh, someone else is asking here, do the crippled feet mean anything? They absolutely do. They absolutely do. Yes, yes. I'm going to get to that in a second. 
the crippled feet do mean something. Okay, so so uh, uh, someone, Karen, replies, we are crippled. We are crippled. And he invites us to his table. Are you seeing, do you hear the whispers of Christ? If you're just reading through this account and just reading these details, you might think, oh, that's a nice detail, interesting. But no, it's pointing us, it's pointing us to the gospel. It's pointing us to Jesus' interaction with us, who wants to, just like David, just like David trying to show the family of of, uh, of Jonathan and Saul, kindness, okay? The Hebrew word that's used there is the word chesed. Do you know what this, this word means? This word would, would probably be better translated as love, or if you want to get really specific, covenant love. And if any of you have ever sat under the teaching of David Filson for, for very, or preaching very long, uh, you would know that he translates that word chesed as grace on the chase, he says. This is something that, that goes beyond ordinary kindness, Okay. Uh, you see, in a world that says, if you love me, I'll love you back, uh, this is the same word that, that it goes way beyond that. It's the same words that used to describe God's love for, for his people, okay? We cannot come to the table on our own accord. We need someone to bring us to the table. You guys are getting it. This is it, okay? God's, God has love for his people, and that's the, the word that he uses here. It's, it's covenant love. It's based on a promise. It's based on a promise, not conditions. It's a love that's proactive, a love that pursues and chases. It's not, it's not just a love that seeks something in return. That's the strength of the word kindness, said here, okay? See, that's the difference between kindness and, and said. Okay, uh, that's what, what, what David was showing Mephibosheth, not just mere kindness, but covenant love, the result of a covenant he'd made with Jonathan, even with Saul for that matter. A covenant that said, no matter what may befall us, no matter, even if you turn your back on me, I will show you Hased, I will show Hased to your family. So, so here's how the story plays out. Listen to the whispers of Christ here, which you're already getting at, you're already pointing this out. Not just in David, Okay, don't just look for it in David. Don't just look for it. Look for it in all the characters. Okay, all the characters in this account. David, for instance, David made, excuse me, made a covenant to his friend, a friend. Listen to this, a friend that gave up his king's robe and put himself in harm's way for the sake of his friend, David. Jonathan, Jonathan in this account. He's whispering to us the person of Christ. He gave up his robe, okay? You see, you too have a friend who made a covenant to you, a friend who gave up his king's robe and put himself in harm's way. Philippians 2, 6 to 8. Look, it's my, my favorite verse, and it's, it's uh, appearing once again. Over and over again, this verse appears. We should all memorize it. We should all have it tattooed on our foreheads. No, don't do that. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself. He took off that kingly robe, put it on us, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay? That's a whisper of Christ right there. Where do we find Jesus in the story? Where else do we find him? Let's see if we have someone else uh, chiming in here. Uh, yep. Because of the covenant I made to your fathers, a blessing to you and your whole descendants. That's the covenant that goes all the way back to Abraham, right? And uh, Luke also says, I love how Paul refers to the mystery revealed. What mystery? The mystery of how we could possibly be reconciled to a holy God. This is how. You've been taught about this the whole time. Now you see it in the fullness of Christ. Mystery revealed. Okay? Awesome. Where do we find Jesus in the story? Listen to this. Mephibosheth, the child of royalty, crippled and marred by a fall. Does the crippled mean anything? Yes. You and I are crippled, marred by a fall. 
just like Mephibosheth, pursued by those who sought to kill him until the king went looking for him, until the king went looking for me, found him and rescued him. And even though he was crippled and marred, an enemy of the king, he was given a place at his table, at the king's table. You too, a child of royalty, crippled and marred by a fall, once pursued by death until the king sought you out, found you and rescued you, And even though you are crippled and marred by your sin, an enemy of the king, you are given a place at his table. Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8 says this. Do you know this one? This is another one we should all memorize. Um, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. You are Mephibosheth. I am Mephibosheth. The Bible has a repetitive message that says God, from the onset of time, made a promise essentially to himself, a covenant that he would not break, to to have a love, a chesed, for his people, that, that though they are enemies, though they are crippled by sin, nevertheless, he would seek them out on his own, find them, rescue them, even though they haven't kept their terms of the covenant. But because he is a covenant keeping God, the covenant remains. When Mephibosheth was brought before the king and David told him, I'm going to show you kindness. I'm not going to destroy you. I don't don't care what you look like. I don't care how crippled you are. I don't care what kind of dead dog you think you are. You are going to have a place at my table and I'm going to adopt you as my son, even though you have nothing you can give me. You have nothing to offer me in return. It, 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 it is, it is very telling. It is very telling that Mephibosheth is crippled. There's no way someone, I think the will, uh, the Josh and Kara brought this up. There's no way he could have found his way. Mephibosheth could not have found his way to the king's table on his own, even if he wasn't crippled. And that's a perfect metaphor for us as well, a metaphor for us as well. We're crippled. We can't walk to Christ. He has to come to us and find us and drag us into his, his presence before we can ever dream of pulling up a chair to his table, right? Listen to this. Listen to this verse, Ephesians uh, 2, 8 and 9. Um, says this, excuse me, Ephesians 2, 4 to 9. But God, read this verse now. Read this verse and think of the story of Mephibosheth here. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which, which, uh, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated with uh, seated us with him in the very heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches for his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus Christ Christ Jesus for by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of god not a result of works so that no one may boast those verses are, are practically a, a synopsis of the, of the story of Mephibosheth. Because of the, of the great love, bless you over there, <laughs> because of the great love of David had, uh, even, even though even that David had for, for Saul and for, well, for really Jonathan too, um, even though Mephibosheth was as good as dead, he was made alive, raised up and seated with the king, sharing the immeasurable riches of the king. And not because of anything Mephibosheth did, lest he boast, right? But because of the gracious gift of the king. My kids uh, got into a discussion recently uh, about nicknames. 
In fact, uh, the dogs that I mentioned uh, at the start of the hour, their names are Ruby and Jasper, and they look like this. I'm going to show you a picture of Ruby and Jasper. These are our dogs. Ruby and Jasper. I can hear the collective aws all across the World Wide Web. Ruby and Jasper. Okay, they look like this. My, my kids have given the dogs nicknames, though. Instead of calling them by their given names, they chose uh, to call them. Uh, I'm not sure when this started, actually, to tell you the truth, but they've, they've started calling them uh, Moose and Caterpillar. Okay, and you could probably guess which one is Moose and which one is Caterpillar. And I even asked one my, uh, my son one day why he calls them that. And quite simply, he said, because that's what they look like. Moose and caterpillar in their own eyes. You and I should take on a nickname. Maybe we should call ourselves Mephibosheth. Why? Quite simply, this is what we look like. You and I, I am Mephibosheth. You are Mephibosheth crippled and marred by a fall. Uh, no way to get to the king's table, but yet we have a way to the king's table because he sought us out, he brought us in, and he sat us at his table. Not for anything we did, not for anything we had to offer, but because he is a covenant-keeping God and he keeps his word, and because he does that, we have a seat at the table. Any final comments or thoughts uh, before we uh, uh, dismiss here with time? We got about 15 till uh, Matthew from Karen also. Matthew 20, 28, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's a great verse. And anytime I feel the urge uh, to use our verse from Philippians, I should also consider that one. The son of man did not come to serve, excuse me, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life uh, as a ransom for many. That's a beautiful, beautiful verse. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you love us so much that though we have nothing to offer you, uh, you are a covenant-keeping God that loves us anyway. And, uh, and because of your word, because of who you are, because of what you have done, you have brought us to your table. Father, help us be mindful of this as we go about our week, uh, all the things that we do and say, the people we encounter, help us to share of this, uh, this, uh, this wonderful message and story that, uh, that you've given us in, in the scriptures that, that is true. Uh, that's the wonder of it all, Father. All this, it's just too good to be true, and it is. We thank you for it. We love you, and, uh, and we, uh, we thank you for your son, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, folks, we'll see you in worship uh, in just a few minutes. So uh, sign off of here. Oh, yeah. And my wife always wants me to say, thanks for zooming in. <laughs> so, <laughs> we'll talk to y'all soon. Bye-bye. Why'd you have to say